0: young. I wasn't even a twinkle in my parents' eyes. Um, But it does seem to be one of those big events which have really defined culture in some powerful way. Uh, Almost changed the way that lots of people see the world. So people ask, where were you when JFK was shot? I'm not sure what the most recent examples of similar turning points would be. I had a bit of a think. I could come up with two news stories which might just have a strong enough media reaction to qualify. Uh, The first happened on the 31st of August, 1997. Any guesses? Princess Diana. Yeah, gosh, I I didn't know that. So That's much better than me. I had to look that up on the internet. Uh, Right, it's the end of my summer holiday. Uh, We were all at home, and one of my brother's friends phoned up. He said, stick the tally on. This is important. Uh, So we went along. We turned on BBC News, and there was the sad story, that the Princess of Wales, I might have a picture of here if I press the right button, had been killed in a car crash in Paris. I confess, it, it didn't affect me that deeply, but uh, it did swamp the TV, the radio, for the whole day. Um, radio 1 somehow felt they were doing good by playing music for the whole day, I'm not quite sure how that served. But it seemed to. Uh, newspapers, their headlines were full of it for a long time afterwards and even today, a newspaper editor can get a reliable reaction just by sticking the word Diana on their front page. And the story was considered so important, everyone had to know. You'd have to work pretty hard actually to avoid the news. Second example... I've got to say, I think it was considerably more important, it was, of course, September the 11th, 2001. At uh, this time, it was one of my sister's friends who rang us up. No one ever rang me up. Uh, he rang us up, and he said, uh, World War Three has started. So we turned on the news, and we saw these awful images. Again, every TV channel, every radio station, and every paper immediately dedicated himself to getting the news out. The whole world had just changed, and everyone needed to hear about it. Well, we're in Zechariah 5 this morning, his 6th and 7th visions, and they carry similar crucial news. It is essential for all Israel, for all God's people, to see and to understand. He didn't have TV and radio to work with, so he spoke figuratively instead. He had this this flying scroll unfurled so it could be read in the skies so that everyone could see it and going out to every corner of the land. It's not something it would be easy or wise to ignore. Well, we've already had Uh, mentioned in this sermon series, that Zechariah's eight visions form a symmetrical pattern. They're arranged around the the two central images in chapters three and four. So we've seen in chapter one, God's diagnosis of the world, he says it's arrogantly self-satisfied, at rest with itself. We've seen his decision to overthrow that, to to rebuild and re-establish his temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, we've seen how God plans to relate to his city. He says he will be its walls. He will be its protection. He'll maintain it. This unapproachably holy, this almighty God that we've been thinking about today, will even live there with them, amongst his people. He even calls them his inheritance, his portion in the holy land. Then in chapters 3 and 4, the vision focuses right in on the leadership of Israel. You've got Joshua, the high priest. He's shown in filthy rags, inadequate to serve. But then he's clothed afresh in God's righteousness. He's told that in the future, the Lord would remove the sin of the land in a single day. And meanwhile, the governor, Zerubbabel, the poor guy who's trying to organise thousands of Israelite builders, marshal resources, and generally get stuff done, he gets told, not by might or by power, But by my spirit, this will all be achieved by the might of God, not mere human power or organisation. It's a pretty triumphant set of visions. And now the camera starts to pan back outwards. By chapter 6, for next week, the visions are are back on the whole world stage. But here in chapter 5, the image has expanded from God's anointed rulers to the level of the city and the nation, the people in it. And the question is this, what kind of people will live in God's kingdom under the protection of this mighty God? The Israelites, as they're doing this work, as they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they must be painfully aware the reason they're having to do it, the reason they're having to reconstruct the temple, is that in the past, their forefathers had turned bit by bit further away from God and brought down calamity upon themselves. It actually happened repeatedly, more than once. It was a bit of a habit with the Israelites, it was almost their national sport. No matter how God used prophets or judges or kings to prod them back into line, they'd only behave themselves for maybe a generation and then they'd forget about God, stick him on the back burner and go on with their priorities, usually getting up his nose. As a result, they've been in exile for the best part of a century. They've had their attention gradually turned back to the Lord, the God who cares for them. But they've still got to be aware that fundamentally, deep down, nothing has changed. Are they just rebuilding Jerusalem to go straight back into that cycle of disobedience and correction. What kind of people will they be that live in God's kingdom? Well, God's answer comes in the, the shape of this bizarre flying swall. It's a surreal image, so it's probably worth unpacking a bit. I'm hearing a bit of uh, sibilance on my assets. Should I move this down or anything? Is it fine where it is? Is it Okay. As long as it's not bothering you, I can live with it. Uh, the simplest reading of this scroll, I suppose, would be simply, God will remove all criminals from his people. Um, the thieves, the people who lie, the ones who pervert justice and swear falsely, they'll be cast out. The undesirable criminals, banished, and their homes, their part in God's inheritance, will be torn down, destroyed. Now, you can imagine some of the middle-class elements of Zechariah's audience sort of giving a slight cheer Heaven will be for the right sort of people. That's what we like to hear. But actually the vision goes a bit further. We're given quite precise dimensions for this scroll. In Hebrew it's 10 cubits by 20, or 15 feet by 30, I think is the measurement in in our translation. That's not coincidence. I mean, it's huge, but it's not just a randomly picked number. It's the same size as the tabernacle, the tent which housed God's ark, the central section of his temple. It's the same size as the place which represents God interfacing with man. It's also got writing on both sides. That's a bit weird for a scroll, but it does make it similar to the the tablets of the law, the stone tablets that Moses received in Exodus from God. And although it does pick out just two crimes in particular, they probably represent the whole of God's law. So on one side is to steal... That's sort of horizontal crime against other humans. You could argue uh, that most crimes could be broken down to some kind of theft. On the other side is a vertical crime, to, to swear falsely, to lie before God, to sin directly against him. So between those two, it neatly covers all of the Ten Commandments. Crimes against God and crimes against people. So this scroll might well represent just the whole law. It's against people who have not loved God and who do not love mankind. God's going to remove such people. God's going to purify his inheritance. Put like that, it's slightly more daunting than just cutting off the criminal types. Evangelical Christian teaching is pretty clear on just how far we all fall short of God's law. Jesus sums it up as, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Love all of mankind as you love yourself. When we're honest, we're a long way from that idea, aren't we? It's impossibly distant. So, it's worth saying now that I don't think this flying scroll is meant as bad news. It's quite the opposite. We've already had, in chapter 3, the promise that God will remove the sin of the land. He's not speaking now to discourage Israel, to put them off. It's good news. He's already told them he will live among them. And even many nations will join them in his city. Even though they're a bit rubbish, they will be with him. So what he's telling them now is that like a refiner who's working over his gold or silver, he's going to cut out and remove and boil off all the impurities. Like a surgeon who's working over a wound, he's going to cut away everything that's infected or dead so that healthy tissue can replace it. What kind of people will live in God's kingdom? Well, a transformed and purified nation, made into fitting citizens for God's city. So this is a blessing. It's described as a curse, but it's a blessing for Israel and in God's picture. He's promising to cut out from them the lawlessness, the wickedness which had previously kept them from him. It's a blessing, but it might not be felt that way. It won't be pleasant for the thief or the one who swears falsely. For us now, there's a similar promise and a similar blessing. If we're Christians, we've got a far greater promise than just rebuilt ancient Jerusalem we a place assured in heaven, in true Jerusalem. An inheritance which will never perish or spoil or fade. Just like these Israelites were promised that before then, we will be made holy. We'll be made to be fit citizens. And thank heavens for that, because I know the atrocious state of my own heart. I'm not fitted now to meet God. So it's fantastic to have that assurance, isn't it? To know that no matter how we struggle or constantly fail in our day-to-day lives, still, by God's power, by God's spirit, we will be made ready for his presence. But it's sometimes tempting to be just a bit apathetic, too relaxed about certain of our failures, especially if they're more hidden or more socially acceptable. So I find myself thinking, well, okay, I'm not going to be perfect until heaven. That's true, uh, and I know I'm weak and feeble. That's true as well, and I will keep getting in tempt- into temptation. So, better just live with it, really. Yeah, as if somehow that makes it all right, as if just because I know I'm going to hell, it's okay to keep indulging it, to dwell in it. So I, I keep indulging my, my lustful imagination. I keep using my money less wisely than I should, giving less than I promise. I keep getting angry and resentful, seething inside about that person who I I just don't like working with. I think when we find ourselves thinking like that, we need to remember this passage. and, And remember that although God is often astoundingly gracious, incredibly patient with the way that we cling on to our worldly lives, Ultimately, everything which is not built around his holiness, everything which isn't up to his standard, will be cut away. And everything that we build around that will get reduced to rubble. That could be unpleasant. So, um, thinking back to personal experience, if, if we cheerfully dive into an inappropriate relationship, well, God might help us to stop that. That can be profoundly painful. If we foster a secret sin, we should be aware nothing stays hidden forever. And it could be hurtful, even damaging to us when God exposes that and deals with it. If we proudly remain arrogant in our hearts when we're with our friends or colleagues, we should watch out, shouldn't we? God may humble us. The Lord will purify His nation, so that it's fit for His presence, and we should keep that in mind. To strive then by, by His grace and spirit to build lives of kindness and humility, holiness, things which would please Him. It brings to mind one Corinthians three verses twelve to fifteen. I say, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Comfortable or not, God will purify his people. What Zechariah's audience didn't have yet is a clear idea though of how God would deal with the problem, that it's not just part of their lives that falls under this curse of verses 1 to 4, it's all of their lives. It's okay for God to say, I'll clean you up, I'll stop you sinning more, but what about all the stuff that they've already done, the punishment that they already deserve? So, along comes this seventh vision. And we get just a glimpse of the final solution. We've got this woman in a basket. Uh, it's even weirder than the last vision, and in fact it actually seems to be deliberately grotesque. Uh, the word used for the basket is an ether. Uh, That That's a specific volume, it's about 22 litres. Google tells me that it's the amount of water that a man might expect his daughter to carry. Strange. Uh, but it, it's a small volume, basically. Uh, not big enough for an adult to fit into So this is a sort of grotesque homunculus of a woman. And she's trapped in there, underneath this thick cover of lead, something pretty nasty. You don't want to let it out. It's like a poisonous snake, perhaps. Particularly, the EFO would be associated with trade, with volumes of grain. So it's quite likely that this woman in the basket represents the iniquity of the land in terms of their trade and their commerce, their their money and prosperity is a false idol, the the ways that people distract themselves from God. Whatever the details, what matters is that when Zechariah is sat there with the evidence of his sin right in front of him, him and his people, bound to rights, guilty as anything, they're not held to account. Instead, the wickedness is just simply lifted up and taken away. It's dealt with separately. They don't have to pay for it. For the Israelites, that is just mind-boggling. It's world-changing. They're not being held to account for their crime. There's no more need then for their their constant sacrifices, trying to atone for God, or for their rejection of God. There's no more of that vicious circle of sin and punishment, and then coming back and sinning some more, and messing up again, and getting... God himself will take away their guilt. God himself will leave them clean. What kind of people will live in God's kingdom? A transformed, purified nation. Because God himself will remove the sin from his people. They're not shown here the full picture. They don't see how this is all going to work out. Uh, that's a privilege that we've got with hindsight. Even prophets like Zechariah were told that they would long to see clearly what we know now. But they do have these promises. God will purify his people and he will remove sin from his land so that he's got a nation which is ready and fitting to live in his presence. It's what these Israelites needed to hear. Their relationship with God would be fully restored. Not by their flawed system of law and sacrifice, but by his power, his, his spirit. He would make them a people for himself. It's pretty much the greatest possible reassurance for them. They will be made clean and worthy to dwell in the city that they're building. Now they know this, they can dedicate themselves fearlessly to rebuilding his temple, because they don't have that guilt of sin hanging over them. They're clean in God's eyes. They can live free before him. For us, well, we see much more of that picture. We've seen the permanent version of this vision. If we're Christians, then we have the guarantee that we will be made ready for heaven. The guilt of our sin, the taint of our crimes, it's already taken away, it's lifted up between heaven and earth just like that basket it's paid for in full by Jesus on his cross it's as if our iniquity our sin has just been carried off to a distant country Psalm 103 says as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us isn't that just an incredible promise what a release for us For Christians here, I think the application of Zechariah 5 is just straightforward. Remember with joy the wonder of what's been done for us. God himself removes sin from his people. Let's depend completely on that. Let's try and build on that. uh, To live cleanly before God. In reverent fear, of course, we'll constantly fail. The best of us is is far from perfect and it would be really easy just to lift and dwell on the flaws in our lives. But God has promised to deal with them. So let's rejoice. Just finally, if you're not Christian here this morning, I'd ask you just to consider Israel's predicament. They were trying so hard to build a nation where they could live safely before God. They've been working at that for hundreds of years thousand years or so. They were trying really hard to be generally good people. But time and time again, they felt the destructive influence of their fallen hearts. They couldn't straight by just trying to be decent. It didn't work. Because at heart they had the same problem as the rest of us. Their isolation from a God who loves them their rejection of his ways, it's like a cancer or a disease which which would infect everything they did and keep bringing them down. They needed a miracle, a fundamental change of heart and only God could provide that for them and only at the cross of Jesus is it offered and completed. Their only option then was to depend on God to purify, to clean them. And I'll suggest that our only hope as well is to depend on that God, to go to Jesus and to ask him to clean us. Along those lines, then we're going to have communion in a moment, remembering how he has achieved that. Uh, But first, let's just sing the next song. Purify my heart.
1: Forfeit my very self. Cross-bearing, says Jesus is the path to gain, to gain everything. Oh yes, he says, and there's something else um, that you need to know. This, he says, is the path to honour as well, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father uh, and of the holy angels. God is going to come one day with the most extraordinary honour, the most extraordinary glory. And he is going to look around For those who can share in that honour, who can share in that glory, to whom he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in your Father's joy. And uh, on that day, he will find lots of people who prefer the more temporary, fragile form of glory. Who would rather be respected in, uh, uh, in this world than actually bear the cross, embrace the shame that he says comes and wait for honour in his presence. I, I vividly remember having dinner when I was an undergraduate uh, with one of my um, uh, university lecturers, she invited me out um, for uh, uh, a meal and um, uh, we were chatting and she eventually said, I don't mind most Christians, but it's the born again ones that I hate. And to my shame I kept my mouth shut. Because I was just too dazzled by being taken out by someone with a few letters after a name. To actually own up to the fact that I was a born again one. And if that becomes a life pattern, then we have, in fact, only to look forward to Jesus' shame, being ashamed of us. You know, the uh, title Christian was initially a sneering term. These are Christ's ones, the pathetic ones. Christians donned it as a badge of honour. Yeah, we are Christ ones. We're glad you noticed. Cross bearing is the path to honour. It is the path to life. It is the path to gain. It is the path to to honour. It is the path to the only real joy and satisfaction and wholeness and completeness and even humanness that we will ever, ever find. And here is the crunch. Will we do it? Yeah I, 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 I fear that that churches are full of people who um, recognize Jesus as the Son of God and the, uh, and the, the Christ.